Hi everyone, welcome to Poetry and Conversation, and welcome to the Pratt Library. I just want to take a moment to mention that we have terrific poetry collections here in our humanities and periodicals department, so come back uh, during library hours and browse them. And also, we do have another uh, poetry reading coming up on March 12th, um, Brian Tier and Joshua Weiner, two uh, poets who had new books in 2013, will be reading. So we hope you'll join us again for that. Also, we have a poetry contest going on until Friday, February 7th. Um, it's a free poetry contest for Maryland residents, 18 and older. And there are some flyers in the back, so please take one um, for yourself or someone you know who's a poet. And please also sign up on our email list in the back so that we can notify you about additional poetry programs. Okay, but tonight is very special. We're really honored to be hosting poets Sarah Arvio and Leah Purpura. Um, to let you know what's going to happen, Leah and Sarah are each going to read for about 20 minutes, and then we're going to have some Q&A. And finally, they'll read some closing poems, and we'll have some time at the end, hopefully, for chatting and buying their books, which are in sale in the back. So I'm going to begin by introducing Leah. Leah Purpura is the author of seven collections of essays, poems, and translations, most recently Rough Likeness and King Baby. Her new collection of poems, It Shouldn't Have Been Beautiful, comes out next year with Viking Penguin. Her honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, National Book Critics Circle Award Finalist, National Endowment for the Arts and Fulbright Fellowships, <clears throat> three Pushcart Prizes, the Associated Writing Programs Award in Nonfiction, and the Beatrice Hawley and Ohio State University Press Awards in Poetry. She is writer-in-residence at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, a member of the core faculty at the Rainier Writing Workshop, and teaches at writing programs around the country, including the Breadloaf Writers Conference. She lives in Baltimore. There is a poem by Leah Purpura that I sometimes think of when I'm waiting for the bus, even though it's a subway poem, not a bus poem. It's a poem called Prayer that imagines what might occasion prayer. Any of a series of little things, the poem says, such as a spot of sun or a bar sign or a name the length of a subway car that only makes sense when you say it aloud in your head as it passes. I love the way this poem celebrates an openness and attentiveness to the other, so totally accepting of the other that it is like simply saying the name of the other silently as the other goes by. I love also how this slender little poem has room inside it for two quarreling voices, though it is mystical and deeply imaginative, dissolving the subway car and the watcher together in a sort of romantic wholeness, it also questions and stands outside of its own mystical impulse with the worldly wise air of the person who points out that, look, the subway car is escaping you, is gone. These values of arguing with oneself and of honoring otherness are keystones in Leah Purpura's work, and so is the subway poem's vivid mimicry of concrete objects. She uses an amazingly rich vocabulary and musical syntax to carve birds, horses, plants, and subway cars so real you can almost touch them. 
When she says of Nabokov that his acts of precision purify and surprise, she's also speaking about herself. Please help me to welcome Leah Purpura. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Uh, that was just beautiful. I'm very honored by that introduction. Thank you all for coming. It's not cold in here, and I'm very grateful you're all here. I have never really dedicated a reading to anyone, but I'd like to dedicate uh, this one to Pete Seeger, who uh, was an artist whose sense of justice and spirit and soul um, have inspired me since I was a child. And oh, I'm going to cry. And we might all take lessons in how to be effective Americans from Pete Seeger, who loved and believed in and raged at this country. So I'm going to read a short essay and then a few poems, and maybe another essay. We'll see how that all goes. Uh, this, this is not um, the sort of usual essay um, I'd, I'd, I'd read. Um, my essays tend to sort of lean toward the, 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 you know, the poem. Um, and this one is uh, distinctly epistolary. So let me give you a little background about it. In 2009, I was asked to participate in a conference sponsored by Orion Magazine, which, if you don't know it, is an environmentally conscious, um, beautiful, beautifully made literary uh, publication. And this conference was called Forget Nature Writing, Let's Talk About What Comes Next. And this Orion Weekend think tank um, was taking place in advance of the um, conference on climate change in Copenhagen, which produced very little substantive pro progress or balance between developing and developed countries, unfortunately, nations. So this was written for an anthology that the writers at the Orion Conference were putting together very fast uh, to forward to U.S. representatives at the conference to sort of make, um, make known a kind of literary, artistic um, conscience and um, interest in uh, these enormous issues. So this essay was uh, written in the form of a letter and it addresses problems that dog me about uh, being an artist in the world and the kind of um, change all artists would like to see their, their work engage and sort of fear that um, you know, there's very little we can do as, as artists. And um, so this kind of talks to that concern and also asserts um, how necessary it is to believe in 
um, a sensibility and to maintain a sensitivity toward very small moments um, as an artist and to believe that that gesture is important in the world as well. So it's just pretty baldly called Letter to My Representative, an essay. Dear, you can fill in the blank. Letters are so rare these days, and I believe we're sorely missing what they allow, a chance to feel oneself the sole subject of another's attention. Here's the scene I've wanted to tell someone like you about for three years now. I just finished watching Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, in a church fellowship hall in Iowa City. It was well advertised and the room was full. Students, professors, artists, writers, townspeople of all ages had gathered on this snowy evening. There was a discussion after the film, and I remember being awash in images and overwhelmed. Strange, but the scene that's most alive to me now is Al Gore riding a cherry picker up to point out stuff on his giant graphs, as if to emphasize both the enormousness of the news and his willingness to be made small by it. I'm not very good in group discussions. They show me to be more anxious than I want to admit. I'm always beating back waves of too rapidly associating thoughts, annoyed at my inability to lob a single cleanly chiseled comment. I envy those whose natural large group rhythm allows them to converse with ease. But I stayed for the discussion because the need to talk with others felt so urgent it superseded my small concerns. The film left me feeling scared, ill-equipped, irresponsible, completely without resources and proper context for the crisis-sized issues at hand, and the talk was helping a great deal. The conversation cycled from practicalities, what can we do, to laments, what have we done, and back again. I added some thoughts, some affirmations, elaborations of others' ideas, all the while The conversation was punctuated by the insistent commentary of an older man, let's call him Jim, who thought the film too dramatic. Come on, he said, the environment's not so bad. Just yesterday I was walking in the woods behind my house and saw a red-tailed hawk. Or, out of proportion, his stats are skewed. It's still minus four out there, isn't it? Or defensive. Gore is politically motivated. He hasn't gotten over his defeat. The group in the hall had been doing a lot of work to ignore, reroute, half-answer Jim, when finally one woman his age, 75 or 80, stilled the room by asking him respectfully, attentively, seriously, why can't you believe this, Jim? And then he was quiet. The quiet hummed on for a socially long time. What filled the space of a pause so extended? Some kind of excavation was happening. You could hear the scrape of very heavy machinery grinding, shifting, moving boulders, junk, dirt, the detritus of a crumbled opinion aside. You could feel a new path taking shape. His voice was mild when he spoke now and wholly without assertion, defense, or anger. Because, he said, it hurts too much. I remember this scrap 
from Dickinson came to me. The stillness in the room was like the stillness in the air between the heaves of storm. I remember thinking that this moment seemed like exactly the kind of revelation one should experience in a church, and that we provided exactly the kind of witnessing such a revelation deserved. Words of understanding, a collective murmuring gratitude for his willingness to speak. People put their arms around his shoulders as we left. I hope this might be useful to you. I'm writing to let you know that I witnessed someone change. I want to write it to you who might be able to to make better, wider use of this moment than I can. Because the circumstances surrounding the moment and every moment hence, the reversals of damage we need to undertake, the awareness we need to promote, the habits we all need to change, the laws we need to create and abide by are dire. Maybe you, in your capacity as a public person, can do something else, something more with this moment. Maybe you can use it to advance your work, clarify a point, strategize, bring yourself back to a calm center after a particularly bad day. Buff the story up. Punctuate and dramatize for presentation as needed. It's an accurate report. Trust that I've got it right, the pause, the stillness in the air, the change that happened for us all, because a stubborn man broke open in the presence of others. I believe the stillness you'll create in order to receive this will inform your day. I believe, or I wouldn't write to you at all, that it will leave a stain, an atmosphere, for you as it has for me, though the incident itself was small. Letters are nearly extinct these days because other modes are more effective, faster, briefer, and other elements, facts, negotiations, logistics, define so much of what passes between us. But even one letter might preserve the traditions I know to be restorative, the space reserved for composing, the little moment of faith when the letters dropped into the unlikely dark of a mailbox on a street corner, and on the other end, the receiving of the letter, repairing to a private space with a drink, with a snack near a window in a comfortable chair, the ritual of slicing open the flap, the sensation of unfolding the pages, flattening the creases, reading the opening few lines, catching the very first whiff of another, another's presence, mine, anyone's. I'm trying here to preserve a space into which this moment, Jim's moment, can extend, a moment which itself seemed the kind of realization one might come to in a letter, but which he came to very publicly. And since I'm not much good publicly and am more adept at studying, as Virginia Woolf called them, moments of being, I wanted to pass this on to you. We all have to do what we can, each in our way. I wish this could be more. Sincerely. So that's the essay. And um, 
I'll tell you a little bit a little bit about these poems. These are very short poems. And I'm almost kind of thrilled that I can measure them like in the air for you they're about that big and some are that big. And they they recall a sensibility that um I can trace back to being 13 uh, when I passed a little notebook back and forth with a few friends and we collected lines that interested us and sayings and, um, you know, quotes and maxims and any little scraps of overheard conversation and took what we liked from each other's books. Um, but what what sort of surrounds that particular sensibility was how uh, quickly a thought of some depth uh, could could get across. And I enjoyed that sensation then. And it's taken a long time to work back around to um, indulging brevity in that in that way in poems. So uh, it's been. Uh, a challenge for the last few years that I've really happily undertaken. Writing really small, really dense, um, and though they may seem quick, they are (laughs) in their making, they're really not. So this is called Belief. a kind of poet's physics. Light, being wavy and particulate at once, is instructive. Why wouldn't other things or states present as both and? For instance, I both believe and can't. Holding these together produces a wobble I think it's time to take seriously as a stance. Uh, This next poem uh, is absolutely pinpointable to its origin. I I was at the McDowell Colony last January. It was about this cold in New Hampshire. And um, certain sounds just came and started sort of, you know, tapping. And um, they were really surprising. I mean, the word begat and begot, you know, they're not sort of your typical everyday, you know, on on your typical everyday word list, you know, like tuna or, you know, frog. Um, but the word begat entered in and sort of comet trailed this poem behind it. And it just really spilled out almost whole. It's um, kind of one of those gift poems. Beginning. In the beginning, in the list of begats, one begat got forgot. Work begets work. One poem 
bears the next. In other words, once there was air, a bird could be got, not taken, not kept, but conjured up. Let's see. Um, Every summer, there is, in any number of newspapers, a little article about the running of the bulls and some scary photo of someone getting gored. And um, that photo conjured this poem up uh, again pretty quickly. Tradition. Someone soon will be gored by a bull, as happened last summer and will again in summers to come. A bull goes off course, a man trips as he runs, circumstances change, but the bull is slaughtered in the end. The event could be quit altogether, or altered, made kinder, but then time or something wouldn't work right. The ripening of fruit or reddening leaves aren't enough to alert anyone to death in the town on the street. There would be no whisper around every corner, come closer, I'm here, death saying, you want to touch me, that's it, isn't it? This is called Future Perfect, my most favorite tense. It totally beats out present and past. Future Perfect. Where you were before you were born and where you are when you're not anymore might be very close, might be the same place though neither is as slippery as being here, but imagining where you will have been, that point where things land, are finished, over, and gone, but not yet. And... Proximities. A man walks into a coffee shop, but it's not a joke. I bought coffee there last summer, small with milk. It's never a joke to walk in or out of a shop unharmed. It's easy to forget you aren't a person being shot at. I'm not. I wasn't, though I was there last summer. Not shot at, and I never knew it did not once think it. Thinking it now, the moment thins, it shears, and I move back to other coffee shops where I never fell or bled, and then I sit for a while with my regular cup and feel things collapse or go on. I can't tell. And let's see. So the notion of, of prayer, um, I know Sh- 
Shailene picked um, one of the poems I've got titled Prayer. Um, here's another one titled Prayer. And I think I, I keep returning to the title, the notion, the process, because I have always uh, felt I really don't know how to do it. Um, I don't have a framework for it. I think I probably do it an awful lot, but I call it just me talking. So here's a brief meditation called Prayer. Some roteness, words in certain orders, bent knees, a more confined space to occupy, a more formal attitude might work. The way a smaller suitcase makes packing less puzzling. I guess I have always envied those who have those, you know, neat, organized things to say. And I think I'll read you one more. Here's a really, here's a short one. It's a short one called Time. Having only a little means you take what you've got or because it's not worth enough, don't. Like not picking up a penny because it's only a little luck. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Leah. That was wonderful. Um, Okay, Sarah Arvio is going to read to us tonight, I think, um, from a book published by Knopf last year, Night Thoughts, 70 Dream Poems and Notes from an Analysis. Her earlier books are Visits from the Seventh and Sono Cantos, Knopf, uh, 2002 and 2006. She has been awarded the Rome Prize of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and Guggenheim and Bogliosco Fellowships, among other honors. For two decades, a translator for the United Nations in New York and Switzerland. She has also taught poetry at Princeton. A lifelong New Yorker, she now lives in Maryland near the Chesapeake Bay. Um, Sarah Arvio has used daring experiments in sound, wordplay, and poetic voice in all of her books to explore and defend her poetic self and its freedom. In Night Thoughts, she carries her originality across new boundaries, producing a piece of art that is literally unlike anything I have ever read before, a startling blend of sonnet sequence, memoir, and analytic essay. Working much the way dreams do, each poem captivates us with haunting, often very beautiful, images or phrases, a squirrel cup in a museum, for instance, or three flame-red tulips, or a pale blue egg, which first vibrate mysteriously by themselves, then begin to resonate with other images and sounds in the book, until through the alchemy of remembering and re-remembering, a true story the poet's own history emerges, releasing insight. All this happens with so much vividness that we feel completely absorbed in the book, as if it were our own dream, 
a super real world that transcends normal logic, the way the squirrel cup transcends the words of the girl who looks at it in this darkly witty passage. This was not surrealism, it was super real. It made me hot and bored. Squirrelism, it made me squirrel inside. I love how you can keep thinking about any of the images in this book forever without exhausting its meaning. To borrow a line from the last poem, there is no end, there is no bottom to it, where it is the search begun through this magical work of art. Please help me to welcome Sarah Arvio. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. How's that? The right distance? The poems tell the dreams and some of the dream thoughts and some of the memories. The prose narrative that follows describes the unfolding of the images and figures in the dreams and the story that emerges from that unfolding. I'll read a dream thought, excuse me, a dream poem or several dream poems, and then I'll um, read some um, related um, part of the narrative. So, um, Night Thoughts, this book, is about the power of the mind to transform traumatic experience into dream language. And the power of the mind also to break that code and discover the memories that have been disguised in the language of the dreams. I'm so happy to be here at the library. It's a wonderful library. <coughs> really happy to read with Leah. Thank you, Shailene. Airplane. And now an airplane lands in the field and incinerates. I use this strange word when I tell the dream, not flames or burns. There was a rusty barrel out and back we called the incinerator, strange word for an old barrel where we burned the trash. I took my diaries out there and back in the bright damp where a spatter of rain fell in the ashes, and striking matches lit the edges and watched as the pages curled, charred, and would not burn. I said, my life, burn up my life, and for one lifetime, I thought, I can stop now and take them back. But no, they were burning, so I let them burn. For Scythia. Here's a dream about my mother. There are three black smokestacks and a black night sky, belching black smoke and yellow sparks. And as the sparks land beyond the black river, they are yellow for Scythia blossoms. Cynthia was my mother, so ha ha, we said, for Cynthia, for Cynthia to the great bush 
of flaming yellow sparks. Only now, years later, I say, for sin, then incinerator, for the barrel where I burned up my sins. I tried to insinuate myself into her thoughts, but no luck, they were elsewhere. But why three black smokestacks, and why the black river? So the narrative is composed of what I call figure sections, the figures being images. And this one is called Incinerator, Forsythia, Incin. My first real breakthrough was the dream called Airplane. Describing the explosion of the plane, I used the word incinerate. Did Shailene mention that this book is also about dream analysis? Maybe she didn't say that. It's about psychoanalysis, so I'm going to be talking about that. The narrative is about the evolution of the thoughts, you know, that, that came out in the psychoanalysis. I'll start over. My first real breakthrough was the dream called Airplane. Describing the explosion of the plane, I used the word incinerate, and then I remembered burning the diaries. When I say remembered, I don't mean I recalled something I had thought of now and then over the years. I mean that the memory broke open, shocking me, and I saw that it, the event, had happened, that I had known of it long before and then forgotten. The sudden viewing of a lost traumatic memory happened only a few times during the analysis. Sudden means shocking, the return of a powerful memory. Other memories came slowly. I understood later that a traumatic memory lost and then found releases other memories. By breakthrough, I mean this was the first time I had the sense that there was more to know about my suffering and that I might be able to find it. Growing up, we lived among woods and orchards north of New York City, not far from the Hudson River. The barrel where I burned my diaries was in our backyard near the woods. In the dream, the airplane bursts into flame on the edge of a field near some woods. In Forsythia, the sparks shoot from black smokestacks. These are also, in a sense, incinerators. There was a Forsythia bush in the side yard under the pine tree, flamboyantly announcing the arrival of spring and always blooming on my April birthday. And yet, How impossible not to see that it belonged to my mother, since her name was Cynthia. I often climbed to the top of the pine tree so I could sway in the wind and view our yard and woods from the highest point. The belching of the smokestacks and the blackness of the smoke suggest pollution. It was a black, black night lit by shooting sparks that are blossoms. The Black River is our river, the Hudson, and the sparks fall across it from west to east, becoming forsythia blossoms on the other shore. I left out a paragraph, but now I'm going to put it back in. I think I should have read it. 
one before this last paragraph. The word sin came as a surprise, and I remembered that my mother's mother called her a sinny. The words Cynthia and incinerator combined to produce the idea of sin and living in sin and burning up my diaries in the incinerator, burning my sin. Red Buick. Only the first sentence is the dream. The rest is the memory. Red Buick. There's an old red Buick on a mountain and a red phone. In life, the red phone was in the hall and the real girl, Robin, phoned. And we said, excuse me, and said, we heard you did something that begins with F and ends with U-C-K and it's not fire truck. I spelled it out and thought, is that what I did or did not? Or else maybe almost fire truck, uck, fuck. And I heard her laugh. And another girl laughed. Years later, I saw her, and she said, We were all doing it. You were too young. My soft, silly self taking the red phone, hearing the fire truck and burning red. Alone, red face on the mountain. Alone. Here's another dream. Um... But a red with a red vehicle in it. Sugar. In this dream, a red truck, an old red truck, with some bold gold letters across the side. Sugar Transation Company. Is it transubstantiation or translation? But no, the missing word is only port. I think there's no importance to this dream. I think what matters is what it's porting. Or will it translate me to somewhere else? Maybe it's the place of all the sugar, and who it ports it to is only me, who needs more sugar than she knows she needs. Sugar, if only someone would say it. In the ports of my ears, sugar, sugar, this would be the sugar of the red truck. Red phone, red cars and trucks, fire truck, fuck. The red Buick was a big convertible with its top down, dangerously perched on a mountaintop. We had a red rotary phone hanging on the kitchen wall with a red cord so long that you you could get pretty far down the hall or around the corner into the coat closet to talk on it. The phone I answered when Robin called was a black phone in the upstairs hall, but the red phone helps to give away the dream's secret, the word fire truck, the taunt that went with it, and the hidden word fuck. Buick odd rhymes with fuck, which together say ick and uck. She was my friend, and she also appears in the dream Robin's egg as the bearer of a toy egg. I recovered a surprising and embarrassing memory around the time of these dreams. During recess, when the classroom was empty, I went to the blackboard, picked up a piece of chalk, and wrote the word fuck 
in large, trembly, capital letters. Just as I was finishing up the K, my teacher walked in. I was her favorite pupil, and I was polite, graceful, exact, and talented. She said, you of all people. That was all she said. I was stunned, too, and blushed deeply. Then I forgot I had done it. As I mused over the dreams, the connection between the fire truck riddle and my writing fuck on the blackboard suddenly blared at me. I was solving the riddle by writing it out in chalk. Much later, I understood that recalling the blackboard and the teacher, my sixth grade teacher, told me how old I was when the events occurred. It seems natural that I would commit this strange, lonely act soon after the fire truck, fuck, phone call. There were other dreams that bore a resemblance to the figure of the fire truck. One was Sugar, the old red truck with the words Sugar Trent's Asian Company across the side. Just now, writing this, I see that the missing letters are an expression of the letters that fell out of fire truck to make the word fuck. In another, a small red convertible, looking like a red patent leather shoe, is displayed on a gleaming white tile floor in the middle of a large showroom in Midtown, New York. The car is made of glossy red cardboard. I have to drive up the West Side Highway or the East Side Highway, and I'm asking how to get there. This wrong name for the East River Drive brought to mind a beautifully illustrated old storybook my mother read to us called East of the Sun and West of the Moon. Rereading the story, I found that when the daughter tells her mother the secret of her love life, the mother betrays her. I also noticed the red car on the white tiles, vividly red on white. Both the red Buick and the red patent leather shoe car are convertible. Something changes into something else. Something is what it is, and also something else. The way of the dream thoughts. Pale blue sheets. <clears throat> the Signora is turning back the sheets and showing me the spots of fresh red blood near the pillow on the pale blue sheets. As blue as sky, I write this in my notes, but out the window the sky is white. What language do you speak, she says. I don't, I say, which seems to mean I really do. And later I remember the toy egg nesting in the hand of the girl robin who hands it to me with her girly smirk, pale blue and spotted like the pale blue sheets and pale blue like sky or not like sky. And now I have no language I can speak. The senora is turning back the sheets.
Robin's Egg. I want to make love with you on the porch, the shady porch with windows all around, and the maple trees all leafy all around. Everyone is coming onto the porch. They won't let us have our love embrace. There's a girl named Robin carrying an egg, a toy egg called a Robin's egg, and she smiles demurely as she gives me the egg. It's sky blue as sky, as spotted as a robin's egg, and just as breakable as I knew. I had seen a tiny half egg cracked with a tiny creature coiled up inside. It had fallen from the maple tree and cracked, and the real baby, Robin Chick, had died. Cord. Here I trip on the cord of the iron as I skip across his mother's kitchen. What did I burn? It was the pale blue shell, a gift. When I turned twelve, I wore it once, burned it with the iron and tossed it out on a day with no irony or sky. But now I know the secret of the shell, some words from the dream of the toy egg. Come to me as though the sky opened up. Pale blue shell that was the robin's egg. The egg and the shirt have the same name. And pale blue shell that lost its baby bird. And iron is the burning irony. And the cord is the cord of the mother. V. She burned her shirt in the shape of a V. And what was V? Not victory, and not vagina. That was too easy. But the triangle appears in the night on tiny pillboxes and escutcheons as insignia on blue dishes and jewels. The triangle of the Mons Veneris to the mind of a tiny girl. But no, the girl was not tiny. Her knowledge was... And now these triangles that appear in jeweled form inhabit her nights with their ancient symbology the girl could not know, but she knows the shape of her new mound, the one Venus cares for. Robin's Egg and Pale Blue Shell and V. Robin's Egg. My friend Robin shamed me by letting me know that she knew, that is, everyone knew that I had had sex. She didn't know that I had or if I had, and I didn't either. The egg, the pale blue shell of the Robin's Egg, represents the fantasy of the baby in my body and refers to the linked memory of finding a broken robin's egg, a surprise foreshadowing. Cord. I was troubled by this dream of tripping on the cord of a clothes iron, turning it over and over in my mind. I'm skipping. I trip on the cord, and the iron falls to the floor. Going back to my notes, I discovered another dream featuring clothes irons, 
In it, two men are chasing me with hot irons among giant boulders. I often found myself writing the letter V and strings of words spelled with V and then stumbled on the image of the V mark burned into my pale blue shirt with the iron. Of course, the V was also a triangle. We lived a purposefully frugal life and had few new things. I keenly regretting, regretted burning the shirt with the iron. I didn't understand that I may have burned it for, for some deeper reason. The dream thoughts are full of rune-like markings, an ancient language, but also a new personal language. Each person has one. Here and there are glimmerings of something like the Jungian archetypes or Joseph Campbell's Thousand Faces. My pale blue shirt was a birthday gift from the other girl who was the player in the game. This may have been, I think it was, the shirt I pulled off during the game, which would mean that it took place sometime between my birthday on April 3rd and the day I embraced the boy I call the cat in this book, which I knew was April 16. It was a pale blue sleeveless nylon top. These shirts were called shells. I've said that I forgot these events for many years. When I remembered them again, I also recalled the remembered date. Discovering the connection between the pale blue shell of the robin's egg and the name of the shirt was a kind of eureka. It made me understand why the image of the eggshell and the color pale blue had been so riveting. Among my mementos from childhood, I found a poster I had made with crayons on oak tag. In second grade, a mother robin and her chicks and a row of ovals showing the progressive development of the fetus inside the egg. The robin project and the name of my friend converged to create the dream, Robin's Egg. When I dizzily imagined that I could be pregnant, I pictured a tiny coiled creature growing inside me. In this memory, I'm sitting alone with my diaries at my desk in the room I shared with two of my sisters. The room and the desk were painted dull pink. The coiled creature in my mind was also pink. In the poster, the mother robin has a worm in her beak. And now I will marry, and I open the silver drawer, but the silver spoons are snapped at the, ne at the neck. They lie there snapped in the bed of the drawer, like the silver heirloom rings our grandmother gave us, made of her old spoons inscribed with the names of old aunts, and I wonder what happened to the bowls of the spoons. Maybe they spooned together like lovers do, lying in drawers, but without their hafts. Or they rolled over in sleep, spoon-feeding love. Maybe they were spoon-fed, all the love a love spooner needs, and the looming 
of my never marriage, her silver hair, my yellow hair, our hearts. Spoon rings, jade, spoon rings, jade plant. My silver spoon ring has my grandmother's name inscribed on the inside. She told me once that her aunt Marian had been lovely and sought after, but had turned down her suitors and become a lonely old lady. This was a special message from my grandmother to me, because she had seen me turn mine away and then cry over them. I didn't think the spoon rings were as beautiful as the spoons themselves and would have preferred to be given the spoon. The word haft emerged in the poem, which I don't think I knew was the handle of an axe, not a spoon. My grandmother had beautiful silver hair in her old age, all pure silver. In the next frame of the same dream, my mother gives me a jade plant as a wedding gift. The plant falls to the floor and snaps at the base of the stalk. My mother's gift to me, jade, being a jade. I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, so at this point, um, we usually do a little Q&A. So if, our, if Leah and Sarah, if you wouldn't mind moving to behind the table. I'm not sure if this mic... Is this mic working? Yeah, okay. Um, so um, we're um, actually recording um, this evening for a podcast. Um, we're recording voices. So um, we like to capture your questions also. So if you have a question or a comment, please raise your hand and I'll bring you the mic. Um, Uh, hi, thank you both so much for coming. Um, I guess my question is just, um, I'd like to hear uh, from both of you uh, whose work you see your own as being in conversation with. That's a very nice way to phrase it, in conversation. Um, because often when the question is asked, you know, who has influenced you or who are your favorites, a big you know, wall comes down. Um, and conversation, to me, spans ages, you know, genders, countries, um, and, and, and that's really a helpful way to, to think about it. Um, you know, really the first name and, and sensibility that, that rises is, is Emily Dickinson. Um, she has many conversations with many many poets. And I'd, I'd have to say also, sort of simultaneously, and in terms of the era, Whitman as well. Um, and this odd thing happens for, for poets who, who sort of get smaller and smaller. Um, there's, an, there's a kind of attendant um, 
expansion of, of you know, desire to sort of take in as much as possible. And so even those of us who write small look, look to Whitman as well. Um, uh, there's a whole sort of cadre of, of Polish poets or post-World War II Eastern European poets who have been really important to me. Um, and so some of those are um, Anna Sphere, Czesław Miłosz, Zbigniew Herbert, um, and they kind of rooted in very, very early on. Um, and that conversation also is tends to be ongoing and, you know, nourishing for a lifetime. So those are, those are just some that, that come to mind. I think as Sarah answers, something will come to mind again. Some, some, some more possibilities will come to mind. It's kind of daunting, this microphone. Um, this is going to seem unbearable, but I don't look to anybody. I, I, um, am I, is the question if I, am I in conversation? What poets am I in conversation with? Or which, or who, or which am I influenced by? Uh, who I'm in conversation with? Inside my mind or in actual life? In my work. Mm. And not necessarily poets, like other artists or writers. Mm. Mm. Uh, when I was first starting to write, um, the poets that moved me the most were of, of a generation right above mine, which is, and they, and they were Mark Strand and William Merwin. Those are the ones I was most interested in when I was first in, when I was first starting to write. And I wrote, tried to write poems imitating them. Um, and, uh, I also then had a period of time when I was trying to write poems that were like Elizabeth Bishop's. And I worked so hard on these poems, trying to make them become poems that were like hers and fly, rise off the page in pure beauty. But it didn't, it didn't work at all. And um, uh, actually, it, actually, it was through my dream work, my dream analysis and the writing that I did, um, the free the free, association, free associating that I did on the basis of the dreams that opened me up to uh, a voice which I, uh, a different kind of a voice which I feel comes, um, of course it's, of course it's um, informed by uh, everything I've ever read, but um, it seemed to come somehow both from me and also from elsewhere at the same time. I, and um, so I don't associate it with, any, uh, with the voice of any other poet. I can't find another poet that I think that I sound like. I feel that I sound like myself to myself. There seemed to be like a symbiotic relationship between the psychoanalytical work that you did and your poetry. Can you expound a little bit more on that? that uh, what inspired what during the process mm, yes i um i was blocked and i i um i wanted to write i wanted to be a poet and i i was so blocked and so upset about my life in my life that um i had this idea that if i if i tried to write it would break the nib of the pen 
I had a fountain pen that I wrote with. And I imagined myself trying to write and the nib would break. I was pressing down too hard, you know. So um, I went, I, I, was, I was seeing a psychiatrist and I went into a psychoanalysis. And, and the psychoanalysis, um, in the psychoanalysis, I began by telling my dreams to my doctor. And then I, I, wrote, I began writing them down and writing down all of my free associations. And this became a practice. So every day I would get up, write down my dream, and then write and write and write all of the thoughts that I had in relation to the dreams. And this process of writing every thought that came to my mind freed my mind entirely. It just opened up the channels of my brain. And it opened up the channels of my brain to my, to my po- poetry thoughts. And my poetry came straight from there. And also, from the analysis, also I, I earned a kind of comfort with myself that I hadn't had before. And that comfort also was a space in which I was able to finally write. Hello, uh, thank you both for coming. Um, in regards to that last question, I, I'm curious if um, the poems themselves and the, the notes from analysis, do, do they both strike you as, as creation? Are they both creations as one coming from one kind of um, muscle of the mind and, and the other one, does it seem to you scientific or are they of the same place? Do they come from the same impulse? Does that make sense? Yes. Well, the- <clears throat> and, I, and if I can just add one thing, do you edit the notes in the same way as if you're creating a poem, or are they notes? Um, oh, okay, so, um, well, the poetry mind and the prose mind are, are different, aren't they? So it's, people say, well, po- um, poetry's like dancing and prose is like walking. Um, no, you've heard that before. <laughs> uh, I feel that. I wrote the poems, most of them very quickly. I had been thinking about the dreams for a long time, and the dreams were very, very clear in my mind. Um, so I wrote them quickly, and um, it was a very rich, kind of a rich experience for me. And when I was through with, with that, um, in a conversation with my editor, we're talking about, I asked her if she thought I might annotate the, the dreams. And she said yes, and I wasn't expecting to write a narrative. Um, I c- called it notes for myself, but these notes, which, were, which are, are, are a cluster of different kinds of, of conversations about images, f- came, fell together into a narrative as I wrote them. And, um, and I, I wrote the narrative in about six weeks. And so um, very, I, I wrote it very quickly. And um, there was, then there was a little bit of editing that came afterward, but really it felt it was almost like writing a poem in that it, was, in that it moved through me in the same way. It kind of overtook me and carried me along from the beginning to the end. Does that answer? Or is there more? Oh, about the, anal- the analytic si- scientific part. That yeah, question. Well, yes, how that's how a- The analysis lives beside the art. Like how they speak to each other. I'm more interested in that. And like, does, does the editing process that a poet might go through to create the poem, does that same musculature apply to the creation of the notes? And are we to take them all together, or is or is separate? I, I, I see them. I, I, I think um, I see it as two ways of looking at the same experience, and they rely on each other. 
And, the, and then um, in the notes, I'm discussing the images and my discoveries on the basis of the images and the dreams. But also I'm telling you, I'm, I'm making some comments about, some, I'm giving you some of my thoughts about the dreaming experience and about this about the study of the dreams. And so those are kind of philosophical and um, uh, not, so not as impressionistic. Um, Leah, I was, I was going to ask, I get the impression that you enjoy both writing the essays and the poems mm-hmm. a great deal. They both sort of exude a kind of uh, enjoyment in creating them. But I was going to ask you, um, do, do you work on a project and today it's an essay and tomorrow it's a poem? I mean, <clears throat> is it in fact the case that they're both equally enjoyable or mm-hmm. is one more natural and, and the other... Uh, I don't know what 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 is the gear you shift? Yeah, how you how do you the other? Yeah. how do I sort of negotiate those two tracks yeah. at the same time? I I usually have a stack of poems going and a few essays going at at the same time, and just the act of sitting down, you know, to the desk at the desk in the morning, sitting down to the work, and the possibility of both of those tracks um, usually one will speak and I will find myself more drawn to working on the poems one day or the essays another day or just one essay um, for a week or one poem for two weeks and um, it's a great relief to have two forms to work in and to you know be able to uh, move into a, a land that's marked by uh, a kind of brevity and density, and then to expand and extend um, a, a, a gesture in prose and to be able to work with a line, a sentence that um, doesn't break off, it just you know sort of keeps going in a more sinuous way uh, down the page. Um, and so I usually simply wait for the moment to... Uh, to call to me in the morning and, and move in one direction or another. And I, I guess I'd say, too, that that waiting to be called is, is uh, very much uh, what happens when I sit down to, com- to, to write uh, something anew. I sort of wait and start sketching something out, and very soon it finds a language. It might be more sound-driven, um, it might be more, the moment might be more sound driven or more idea driven, uh, but very soon it it clicks into the form that feels uh, best for that particular idea, and it's completely mysterious. I have really very little control and very little understanding of you know what what it is that's that's speaking. Um, I recognize it as sound or length, and other than that, I'm kind of helpless and just respond. Um, but they are equally important, and um, and I practiced both equally. So it wasn't always that way, I should say. And I have to credit my husband for really suggesting 
that I, I look at prose um, at a point in my life when the poems were very, very hard um, to, to grasp and to, and to touch. And he said something completely brilliant, like, why don't you just sit down and look out the window and write what you see? And I said something utterly typical, like, that is really stupid. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then also typically went and did just as he had suggested and felt a lot better. And it extended, and I did that for a few days and was suddenly in essay territory. Um, it's not nearly as quick and easy as I made it sound, but that's the general turning, the story of the turning. So. Yeah, uh, this question is for Sarah. Uh, it seems uh, in your dreams, uh, one scene spins off another scene of an element within a dream, and then it becomes a dream within a dream and there are different strings that just connect all these little elements. Uh, is that purposeful, or how, what's the process behind that? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't understand one word. Was that... Pro uh, purposeful, as in, oh, what's, purposeful. The, yeah, what's the process behind that? Um, well, that's the way the dreams came to me. So, um, for instance, I had the, the robin's egg dream. And um, only when I was, um, I wrote down all of my dreams, as I said. So when I was looking over my dreams and thinking about what I might write about, and, you know, thinking about them, I found um, the pale blue shell um, dream. And it was two days after the robin's egg dream. I, I hadn't at the time noticed how close they were together. In fact, one of them I had forgotten about it and only found it in my notes. So, as it turns out, the, my dreams came in, in sequences, that is to say, and, and they were often grouped around colors. If, if you read the book, you'll, you'll see how that works. Um, so, there are a number of dreams where the color is pink, um, and in one dream it's watermelon. Uh, and uh, in another dream, it's pink pistachios on a bush, a bush of pink pistachios. So the color pink, and the, the meaning, the meanings of the dream, um, also I find them through the colors. As I say, the associations that come to my mind might be through a string of things which are that color. Right. There's another way that the dreams find their meanings, which has to do with wordplay. And... Um, Mm, for instance, um, I had a dream, uh, the names of people. You know how when you dream, you can dream about somebody from any part of your life and they would have no meaning to you. And you say to yourself, why would I be dreaming about this person? So um, I had a dream about someone named Rusty who meant nothing to me. He was one of my neighbors, no meaning to me. And um, as I worked on the dream, I discovered a memory with rest in it that had very, a lot to do with my, um, my particular trauma. So, um, so the dreaming moves forward like that. Okay, maybe one more. I'm fascinated by something, and part of it is, I suppose, age 
difference. But in listening to the two of you and answering in what you read, the dreams, the poems, poems, the essays, can either one of you really define, both of you are very creative, can you define what the difference between poetry and prose is? And can you, does it really matter? Or, or from what you're doing, creating with language? I think it's really probably most interesting for a reader who's interested in, in you know, both prose and poetry to find elements of the other in a certain form. So when reading an essay, to be alert to what to you feels poetic or what to you feels poem-like, or when reading a poem, to be alert to what feels like an interesting argument taking place and to note you know, how a poem shapes an argument. So um, yes, it matters. You know, form matters to me. There are certain things you can do in a, in a poem that you can't do in an essay. An obvious and easy one is you know, break lines in certain ways so as to maximize internal meaning. And um, you, you can't really use space in the same way on the page when you're writing an essay. But to see elements of, of um, form in, 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 in both is, um, I think, a, a really alert way to read. And to be able to erase certain distinctions for yourself as a reader is, is very helpful. Um, so I, I am very clear about writing an essay um, in prose and in that, you know, with the felicities that, that a long line allows. And I'm really alert to writing a poem and uh, using the terms of a poem, you know, for my purposes. Um, but there are also ways that the, that the two interconnect that are very exciting. So might be one way to, to think about it. Got anything on that? <coughs> So when my um, was, book was already in sh the shape that it was probably going to be in, almost done, um, a friend of mine, um, the novelist Edmund White, um, read it and he said, um, there's, there's a, a model for this, and um, that's um, Dante's um, Vita Nova. I, that was a very flattering um, <laughs> comparison. <laughs> and in the Vita Nova... Um, Dante is talking about his life, what happened in his life, and his love affair with um, Beatrice, Beatrice. And, um, and then he breaks into a poem. And he, he's writing a poem about the same thing that he's been describing. And then he goes back and talks some more about what is happening in his life and his passion for Beatrice, and if he saw her or didn't see her, and so on. And then again into a poem. And one thing I noticed about that is that it's, it's not that easy to move from poetry into prose and back again. It's the rhythm that changes. The, the mental rhythm is different. So it's a transition, which is a bit of a jolt each time you move from one to the other. Because there's a way in which they, they are so different. It's a different kind of thought. One's more rational, isn't it? And one is more, somebody give me a word, irrational. <laughs> <laughs> well, there must be elements of um, there must be rational elements in the poem, also and um, irrational also in prose. 
in order, I think, mm -hmm. for them both to be interesting, don't you think? Okay, well, I would, I could go on. I mean, I would keep on listening to this conversation a long time, but I think we, maybe we should have some closing poems, and then there will be time um, to talk a bit after. You can just read right from where you're sitting sure. if you like. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Go ahead. All right. <coughs> I'll just read two short poems. Chosen. Why hope for a sign just for yourself when there are signs to be had all around, the sky being vast and sheep the size of po postage stamps? Why feel for a bird come to your sill and not one flying over, going elsewhere? As Miłosz wrote, nothing but gifts on this poor, poor earth which means to me now, 20 years after I first read it, everything mostly goes unclaimed. I'm glad I mentioned Miłosz as an influence. Conversation. Red bird in snow. You can choose to stop short or have it not matter not weigh the brightness, not hold very still, and be known to yourself again. A thing fills with exactly the radiance you accord it. Thank you so much for coming, and to the Pratt and our hosts, it's a beautiful space to read in, and I am always so warmly welcomed here. I really appreciate the support of poetry that this library shows. Thanks. Sorry, three. Just poems, no, no narrative. Um, lips. Another night, I find lips on my chest. They're near the middle, on the left-hand side. Wings, I think. And then I see they're fleshy. Not mouth lips. These are the lips of the sex. I see that my sex is right there on my chest, like wings, but fleshy and with an open place. I think that would mean leading to the heart. Then I think, yes, that's where the lips should be. The problem is that when I wear a blouse, they make a lumpy place over my breast, and I can't keep people from noticing. You can wear your heart on your sleeve, but not your sex on your heart. And next time I look, they're flitting around like a butterfly. Quite a dream, right? <laughs> Tulips. I apply for a competitive job. In the first cut, I receive three flowers.
three paper cutouts of flame-red flowers. Flame-red, 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 and all cut out. They're tulips, or else parrot tulips. I have tulips. This is what I know. But here in the dream, I have the three tulips. My tulips speak, and when, I, when they speak, they flame. And when they flame, they are parroting me. They may be me, speaking back to myself. A bright green parrot, speaking with my lips. They could be saying, I know you're cut out for the flame-red parrot tulip job. Or could be saying, I know that you were cut. Sheer. There's a girl wearing a see-through blouse. The man says, you're wearing a she-through blouse. And she says, I didn't know it was sheer. The next time she looks, her breasts are sheared off. This is sheer agony. That's all it is. The big shear is lying in the back of herself. And here she is, she-through, showing herself all through and through. He sees her, and she sees herself cutting herself sheer to the nub. The blouse is sharing something that she has, a beautiful, soft offering that she has. And here is the nub of the truth of it. Why would she shear off the beauty she has, who can never see herself through and through? Thanks. Thank you so very much, Leah and Sarah. You're both wonderful and have given us all a wonderful evening. And I would thank everyone for coming. Um, just three quick things. Um, first, the poet's books are for sale in the back corner. Please buy them. Um, second, we have, as I mentioned, an email, uh, sign-up list on, in the back where you can sign up to be notified about Pratt poetry programs. And third, um, we have some evaluation forms in, on the table back here. And we'd love if you could leave us... Um, some feedback because it helps us plan future programs. Thank you.